Well, we come this Lord's Day to continue in our study about the false Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Now, last Lord's Day, we mentioned that in looking at this doctrine, we find almost at once there's no support from Scripture. There's a lot of false teaching that undergirds the doctrine of purgatory. Catholics do not believe that Christ justifies for all time all those who put their trust in His sacrifice on the cross. They do not believe that we are declared righteous for Jesus' sake by imputation of His perfect obedience and bloodshedding in our place. They are told they can repeatedly lose their salvation through the commission of, quote, mortal sin, unquote only to be restored by church rituals and the Mass, which they claim is a propitiatory sacrifice offered by the priest for the remission of their new sins. Under their teaching, a man can trust in Jesus and end up going to hell at the end. And thus a constant life of rituals and meritorious good works and fear and subjugation to Roman Catholic doctrine dogs a poor sinner all through his life, and when he dies, he cannot know that he is saved. On top of all that is the hateful teaching of purgatory. There, the Roman Catholic is taught, one's sins must be punished in the flames in order to purify the poor Christian so that he can be fit to appear before God's presence. The argument goes like this. It seems reasonable that we would need to be purified of our sins by punishment before we can be holy enough to go into God's presence. But when we seek evidence of purgatory in Scripture, we find none. There really is only one text that good Roman Catholic apologists rely upon, and that's 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11-15. through 15. The problem is, in that text, Paul is addressing the deeds of those who are building the church upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, which Paul has laid down previously, such teachers and ministers are warned that the building they construct will be judged based upon whether it is good or bad, solid or flimsy, pleasing to God, or unworthy of its foundation. Paul then uses a metaphor describing the gospel ministries of men as building with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble upon the foundation of Christ. It is clear that these terms symbolize the quality, value, and durability of the construction made by Christ's ministers. Then Paul continues this metaphor stating that this construction will be tested by fire, that is, that there will be a penetrating judgment cast by Christ upon the work of His ministers, and all the work that is worthless will be destroyed. Paul is warning gospel preachers that they must be careful to build sound works that will survive God's penetrating inspection, or they will suffer loss and all their work will be for naught. Clearly the fire, like all the gemstones and the gold and silver and wood hand stubble, is metaphorical and is specifically used to try the works of men and not the men themselves, nor to punish the men themselves. Not only is there no scriptural basis for purgatory, 
But the Roman Catholic teaching on indulgences actually destroys the stated purpose for purgatory. Purgatory is predicated upon the false idea that Christians are forgiven their guilt, but not the punishment for their sins. Thus they need to be purified by the fires of purgatory in order to be holy before God's presence. So the flames of purgatory allegedly serve to purify Christians, which they claim is both necessary and required, but it turns out that others can suffer in the poor Christian's place. Others can pay the price to release them from the flames. The good works of others can be credited to them so that they might escape the need for further punishment. These special releases are called indulgences, which are also not found in Scripture. Only Christ can pay the price of justice for sinners. Only Jesus can suffer salvifically in the place of sinners. But under Roman Catholic doctrine, a Christian doesn't actually have to be purified by punishment and torment. The Pope can waive all those necessities with these indulgences. These good works to withdraw the fires of purgatory can even be one's own. In fact, according to Roman Catholic teaching, some Christians are so good and perform so many good works that they have no punishment left to suffer in purgatory. And these so-called saints can contribute to less perfect Christians to release them from the flames as well. Thus, it is not actually necessary or reasonable to believe that a Christian must be purified by the flames of purgatory since the Roman Catholic system provides an escape at little to no cost to the poor sinner. Apparently, you too can go into the presence of God without the necessity of being purified in the flames. All of these false teachings flow from a misunderstanding of the nature of righteousness. It is not a piecemeal thing, but the perfection of obedience before God. That is, to be before God without any sin entirely. None but Jesus can have it by their own good deeds, for only one sin forever destroys righteousness in the sinner. Only Christ can impute a perfect righteousness unto His people by faith in His obedience and bloodshedding at the cross. There is a confusion of the consequences of sin in this life with punishment by God for sin hereafter. In this life, sin has its natural consequences even after the sinner is forgiven. Damage is done to the body or to the bodies and goods of third parties may indeed remain until death, but these are not temporal punishments for sin. The truth is we can and only will be righteous by the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith for all eternity only by Christ. We are being purified unto good works in this life, but even in heaven, when we will never sin forevermore, our righteousness even then will only be that which we obtained from the Lord Jesus. True believers must never grasp at our own good works as any basis at all for our righteousness or that we might in any way by them be justified before God. Oh, that the Roman Catholic people would grasp hold of this mighty truth foretold by God to the Jewish people in olden times 
Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. For the Christian, only the Lord is our righteousness. And our only righteousness is in the Lord. By His sacrifice as God's Lamb, we are forgiven of our sins. And then He becomes our righteousness. And then forevermore we have peace. We have peace with God. Now, the consequence of false belief about righteousness and the impossibility that our suffering or our good work can satisfy God's justice and the false teaching that believers must be purified by suffering after death, yet do not have to be if they're excused through indulgences. This false teaching means that the precious comforts of the Scriptures have all their goodness and hope for believers spirited away by this false teaching. It can be seen in two incidents in the Lord Jesus' life where He taught and where He suffered on the cross. For example, the story that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. We read it this morning, but we'll read it again. The rich man and Lazarus, Jesus described, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which could pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now this story that Jesus tells, and the theologians argue about whether it was a true story or a parable, but it really doesn't matter for the purposes of our discussion today. Jesus is repeating with approval the Jewish concept of His day that upon death, the Lord's people go into paradise 
a place of comfort while they await the resurrection of the dead. And the wicked go into Hades, a place of fiery torment, while they await the resurrection unto the last judgment. Jesus puts His stamp of approval upon this structure. At least it was a valid construct before the Lord Jesus rose from the dead and took all of His people to glory with Him. But notice, first of all, that Lazarus went straight to paradise. It says the angels carried him unto Abraham's bosom, which is a figure of speech to say the place that Abraham, the patron saint of the faithful, the one who was faithful and believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, that place where Abraham also waits the coming resurrection. That Lazarus went straight to that place of comfort. But the rich man, he went into torment. Now notice that it says that he died and in hell he lifted up his eyes. It's not clear whether there is a period of time there in which the rich man was insensate or not. But we know this, that Lazarus was carried by the angels into paradise and to comfort. But then notice also that the rich man had shown no kindness to poor Lazarus. Well, he might have actually allowed him to eat the crumbs that fell from his table, but this poor man Lazarus, he left out on the street in front of his house. He couldn't help have known about it because every time he would leave the house and come back, there would be this poor, miserable man who was unable to help himself. It doesn't say he was lazy or just some sort of con artist. No, he was in desperate straits. He was covered with sores and the dogs licked his sores. He left the poor man outdoors with the stray dogs on the ground. Maybe he gave him some table scraps or maybe his servants had compassion and fed him with some leftovers of some sort. But he certainly didn't take him in. He certainly didn't seek him any medical attention. He didn't do anything to comfort this poor man or to help out a helpless neighbor. But he was very rich and he could have shown mercy, but there's no evidence of it in this story. It recalls to mind that judgment which the Lord Jesus sitting upon His throne makes when He tells the wicked, the unrighteous, that He sends to hell, the parallels are striking, You didn't feed the hungry. You didn't visit the sick. Of course, he said, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. And when I was sick, you didn't visit me. And they said, oh, no, that isn't us. And he said, no, I mean that my people, when you didn't do it to my people, you did it not to me. This is a truth that can be easily distorted because it is the truth that feeding the poor and healing the sick won't make a man righteous. But not feeding a helpless neighbor and providing care for a helpless neighbor will certainly show that you are unrighteous. And this is what the rich man had done. He was an unrighteous man because he ignored the needs of someone whom he had every capacity to help, who was by definition his neighbor, And yet, he did not have compassion on this poor man. 
But note that the rich man tacitly admits that he had rebelled against God's commandments. If you look at verse 27, he asks that Lazarus be sent to testify to his brethren so that they might not come into this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. They will repent. Notice it says. They have Moses and the prophets, you see. It was a rebuke. Because you had Moses and the prophets too. And you didn't repent. And so you see the rich man here is trying to explain that he had Moses and the prophets, but he didn't have a miraculous sign of someone risen from the dead to testify that the Scriptures are really serious about this judgment thing. And let me tell you how bad it is so you can hustle on and get caught up, you see. Repent. He thought his brothers would repent because he hadn't repented. But he hadn't had the miracle of a testimony like he was asking Father Abraham to do for his brethren who were also wicked men. They would have repented with a miraculous sign. If I had known about the judgment and torment, I would have as well. But notice the conclusion of Jesus in verse 31. Abraham said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. And that really is the, the history of the Jewish people. Not only that, it's the history of all mankind. By and large, people won't listen, won't believe God's Word, won't believe the promises of, of judgment, won't believe the way of salvation, the Gospel message. Well, they just go on in their sin, won't they? Notice that this statement that Jesus places in the mouth of Abraham, if it's just a story, is an ironical statement because one named Lazarus, not this Lazarus, but another Lazarus did rise from the dead. Jesus raised him up on the fourth day of his burial. You remember the story well. And the leaders tried to kill Lazarus because, they said, many believed on Jesus on account of the resurrection of Lazarus. For the people who are the Lord's people a miraculous sign such as the resurrection of Lazarus or more to the point, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is a contribution to faith in the promises of God. But to the wicked, it just condemns them further. They try to stamp out, you see, the sign of the promise of salvation and everlasting life to those who put their trust in the Lord. And this is the pattern that the Lord Jesus through the mouth of Abraham describes in this story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, the conclusion is this. There is wrath for the wicked after death that will never be escaped. And there is comfort for the Lord's people immediately after their death. There's no room, you see, in this story for purgatory. There's no space between the death of Lazarus on the street and the angels taking him to a paradise, a place of bliss 
and of comfort. No room from purgatory. There is rather a story of the blessed release from the travails of this life and an entrance into the portals of glory and heaven for the Lord's people. But the Roman Catholic teachings, they actually try to turn this text into a proof of purgatory. Even Pope Benedict XVI, was it, actually issued a paper in which he opined that this story was one of the reasons why the doctrine of purgatory was developed by the Roman Catholic system. You see, their argument is the rich man was not in hell or he was not headed for eternal judgment. He was just in purgatory. He was being tormented for his sins. That's what they say. And so he's suffering torments for his sins. But the problem with that interpretation is that Father Abraham doesn't extend to the rich man any hope at all, does he? He doesn't say, don't, don't worry, this isn't going to last forever now. You'll be out of here as soon as you've been punished and purged of your sins. No, he doesn't say that at all. And then they say the fact that Lazarus escapes torment because he had suffered enough already in this life. You see, that made up for all of his sin. And therefore, he could just go straight into paradise. And this reminds us of that false doctrine which the Roman Catholic system embraces that somehow suffering is salvific. That if a person suffers in this life, that's uh, actually a good thing because it cleanses them of their other sins. And suffering in general has a salvific purpose. Not just the suffering of Christ, but the suffering of any just and righteous person is a saving act. What a foolish nonsensical idea that's not taught by the Scriptures at all. You see how the false teaching of purgatory manages to suck out all the goodness and hope for ordinary Christians and perpetuate a false teaching that forces a poor believer onto an endless cycle of ritual and so-called good works, works righteousness, because in the end, You see, it's left up to us to save ourselves from the torment of flames. Not the Lord Jesus, us. And maybe other saints and Mary and the church and the Pope and so forth. But the credit for being saved from torment doesn't come to Jesus. It comes to all this whole constellation of mechanisms that the Roman Catholic system has constructed. Now, another example of the truth in the Scriptures that there is no time for purgatory may be found in the story of the penitent thief on the cross. We read of this in Luke's Gospel, the 23rd chapter at verse 43. And one of the malefactors, which was hanged on a cross next to Christ, railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. 
Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now this text, of course, offers blessed hope for the salvation of poor sinners, not through any work of their own, but by the mercy and grace of God, who can lead a sinner even at the last moment to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. And so oftentimes we forget this truth when we condemn people to hell after they die, not knowing that they might have received grace from God in those last moments. They might have been converted by the Holy Ghost to trust in the sacrifice of Christ. Of course, it's presumptuous to presume that you can put off trusting in Jesus until some more convenient day. Nevertheless, the hope is that if this poor sinner can be saved without any chance of a lifetime of good works, if he can be ushered into the presence of God, into paradise with the Savior, that moment that he dies, why, this is a glorious hope, isn't it? In fact, I read a fictional account of a local crime and in the account, it was written by an attorney, it was a really shocking conclusion where a woman who was a hitman who had killed innocent people lay dying in a hospital and this man went to her and gave her the gospel witness of the thief on the cross because she said that she could never be saved from her crimes. They were too dark, too evil, too horrible. But he preached to her the gospel of Christ on the cross and the penitent thief, and she believed. And then she went to heaven. And in the book, the penitent thief is the person who greets her there. So this text has long been a blessed hope for the Lord's people. God worked faith in this horrible sinful man to believe on Jesus even as he died beside him. He trusted that Jesus, no matter his dying there, would come into his power and glory as Messiah one day. He trusted that Jesus was the Messiah who would have a kingdom. And it didn't matter what wicked men were doing to him there. He was a just man. He had done no wrong. And this man, by the Holy Spirit, believed in Christ as Messiah and cried out to Him to remember Him when He came into this kingdom. Perhaps this is the most astounding example of faith to be portrayed in the Scriptures. That a man could trust in a dying Savior and still know that that man, the Lord Jesus, still had the power to save poor sinners who called upon Him. He cried out to the Savior, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. But Jesus tells that poor thief something astounding, you see. You see, that thief, he knew he was on the road to, to the torments of flames, didn't he? All of the society knew that. It was a part of their religious culture and training 
the story that happened to Lazarus and the rich man. Not that particular story, but the ideas of paradise and Hades and the abode of the Lord's people versus the abode of the wicked. And he knew he was headed for the abode of the wicked. But the Lord Jesus corrects him, you see. He says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise, a place that this poor sinner, this thief, had no hope of ever entering, did he? He hadn't even asked for that, had he? He asked that when the kingdom came, that he be remembered by the Lord Jesus. No, Christ said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The thief knew he had no hope of comfort in paradise. He knew he was bound for torment and punishment. But Jesus right there, the implication is, which can't be missed, that his sins are forgiven him by the Lord Jesus. You will be with me in paradise. I will account you as one of my people, as the righteous, as they like to call themselves. I will account you as that, not the wicked to be turned into hell. And so clear an example of the sacrifice of Jesus taking away the sin of those who believe on Him. So clear an example of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ upon a poor sinful man by faith so that you will be in paradise with me where the Lord's people rest and are comforted until the resurrection. You've done everything to deserve the torment of flames, yet I will take all the responsibility to bring you unto paradise today with me. No wonder this is a comfort for believers to know that with Jesus we are safe from torment and wrath when we die. And ever so wretched a sinner with no chance to redeem himself with good works, is ushered into glory by the saving power of Jesus in whom he placed his trust at the last moment. And I leave with you this idea that no doubt there will be many people in glory that we thought were sent to hell because somehow at the last moment they trusted in Jesus and he saved them. And it's a glorious and remarkable truth. The Lord Jesus can have mercy near the very end. But notice in this incident that Christ leaves no room for purgatory, does He? This poor sinner is in paradise with Jesus that very day. The same day He died. It can't be more clear. But to the Roman Catholic teacher, there are all kind of ways to shoehorn, to shoehorn purgatory into this story. To rain on our parade of rejoicing, to take away all the goodness of what Christ has done. There's always a way to suck out all the goodness from this blessed text. First of all, they say, well, we never said how long purgatory would last, did we? It was still time for him to go to purgatory. He could swing by purgatory for a couple of hours. There were some hours left in the day. That's no problem. We can read it into the text. This text has nothing to say about purgatory. And then the second argument is, well, of course, Jesus can grant any indulgence he wants. 
He can excuse this man from the purification of the flames of hell, while others are not excused, but must pay the full price of having their sins expiated by their own sufferings in the fire. And then number three, Jesus didn't tell this man he was going to be in paradise today. He said, I tell you today that you will be with me in paradise. They moved the comma. And of course, there are no commas in the Greek, so who's to say that it couldn't be that way? And then finally, this man suffered enough on the cross, you see, to pay for all his sins. It didn't matter how many crimes he had committed while he had suffered crucifixion. What a gory thing. And therefore, you see, his, his sins are remitted. The punishment is remitted. He's already suffered the punishment in this life. And besides that, he rendered a marvelous good work in that he defended Jesus from the scoffers. So he no longer needs to be purified by suffering. You see how purgatory teaching tries to take away the glory and the promise that Jesus gave to us and subject us to the fear of torment after we've trusted in Jesus. Now Paul, the apostle, also taught the immediate presence of believers in the Lord upon our death. In Philippians chapter 1, at verse 20, we read this. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Paul was referencing, of course, the persecution that he received and the possibility that he might be put to death by the Roman government and all the travails and torments of his ministry. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, he's better off to die than to continue to live. Although it is for the purpose of promoting the Lord Jesus that he lives. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I should choose I wot not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ which is far better, far better for Paul. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of the faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. So you see, he's saying that it is a benefit to the church that he should remain alive and in ministry even though it would be best for him if he went ahead and died and went into the presence of the Lord Jesus. Now Paul is willing to put off for the good of the church. his dying and going straight into the presence of the Lord Jesus. There's no hint in here of torment or flames, no room to shoehorn in a stint in purgatory. And lest somebody try to claim this is only for the apostle, you see, all of his good works had him ahead of the game. He had no more need for punishment in purgatory, so the argument goes. But consider what he taught in 2 Corinthians 5. We read this passage this Lord's Day. 
For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's talking about that spiritual body which God has prepared for all of His people at the resurrection. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we should not be found naked, for we that are in this tabernacle, this earthly body, do groan, being burdened, not for that we should be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. You see, our bodies are mortal here. They're decaying, aging, falling apart. They're going to be subject to the destruction of the grave one day. But not so the spiritual body. The spiritual body, which is like Christ's, doesn't have to submit to the way the world works like our bodies in this life do. Our bodies in this life are marred by sin and the fall, but the bodies that the Lord has prepared for us, the spiritual bodies, are not marred by any sin or fault at all. and They're not subject to the way the world works. But then to go on, now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. See what he's saying is that God has made us to receive these perfect spiritual bodies one day. That He has wrought this for us, wrought us for this thing. But already He's given us the earnest of the Spirit, the down payment. Therefore, we are always confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So this is the hope. This is the true teaching that Paul gives to all the believers. That when we die, when we're absent from the body, we'll be present. We'll be present with the Lord. No room for any indeterminate intervention of the torment of purgatory. You see, we do not come to this Lord's table to seek the forgiveness of sin. We come to celebrate the forgiveness of sin. But we already have received forgiveness. We have trusted in Jesus. For He has already paid all the price for our sin. As Isaac Watts put it in that precious hymn, we come with grateful hearts as those who have been blessed. We don't come to the Lord's table to celebrate this so that we might have our sins forgiven. So that we might be restored to salvation as the Roman Catholic false doctrine teaches. No, we come to celebrate that we have been forgiven, that we have been saved by the blood and the obedience of Christ. And will not allow false teachings to rob us of the blessed promise of the Lord Jesus to us that when we die, we will be present with the Lord. We who've trusted in Him. There will be no intermediate punishment for our sins for they have already been laid upon the Lord Jesus. It reminded me of the words of that song we sing so often. Done is the work that saves. Once and forever done, finished the righteousness that clothes the unrighteous one. The love that blesses us below is flowing freely to us now. The sacrifice is o'er. 
The veil is rent in twain. The mercy seat is red with blood of victims slain. Why stand within without in fear? The blood of Christ invites us near. The gate is open wide. The new and living way. It's clear and free and bright with love and peace and day. Into the holiest we come, our present and our endless home. Enthroned in majesty, the high priest sits within. His precious blood once shed has made and keeps us clean. With boldness, let us now draw near. The blood has banished every fear. Into the Lamb once slain be glory, praise, and power, who died and lives again, who liveth evermore, who loved us, cleansed us by His blood, and made us kings and priests to God. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the sacrifice of Christ's body on the tree. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it, and He broke it, and He said, Take and eat, this is My body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice that You sent Your dear Son to be our Lamb of sacrifice, to take away our sin in His own body on the tree. We thank You that He bore shame and scoffing rude in our place condemned He stood, sealed our pardon with His blood, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lord, thank You for this cup that He left us to picture. To picture the blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin. We thank You that our sins have been forgiven on account of the blood shedding of Christ. And He's taken away not only the guilt, but the punishment so that we are set free. We thank You for the promise that's given us one day when we cast off this mortal shell that we will be forever and immediately in the presence of the Savior, that He will present us to Himself faultless, without blemish, on account of His blood shedding and not on account of our own deeds or sufferings or the works of any saints or popes at all. Lord, thank You for this cup that He left us that we could gather around this Lord's Day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 191 in the black book. Faith eats the bread of life and drinks the living wine. Thus we in love together knit on Jesus' breast recline. With Jesus in our midst, number 191.